perpetual traveler through the Bible. Please join me for the next part of my journey through the scriptures. Stay as long as you like and let us together discover a bit more about the Bible. I believe that as we get closer to the return of Christ, true Christians will become more and more hated and persecuted throughout the earth. Did you know that being hated and persecuted by the world just because you are a true Christian is one of God's promises? Most Christians today wrongly assume that all of God's promises are only positive and are made for our spiritual, emotional and material benefit. But remember, in Luke 21 verses 17, Jesus promises his followers that you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The nations of the world will become more and more united in their hatred towards believers. And although this could not happen overnight and would obviously be a gradual progression, it will accelerate and intensify as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ. The three woes that are described in Revelation chapter 9 are not so much physically worse like the Saffir-Simpson categories of hurricanes or the Richter scale for earthquakes as they are different. They have more of an effect on the mental and spiritual part of human beings than the physical effect that they have. Animals react to stress and danger physiologically, whereas humans react psychologically. If a zebra gets chased by a lion, the zebra's pulse and respiration and adrenaline all shoot up. If the zebra escapes, they all quickly drop down and the animal will return to eating grass. The zebra is not going to remain upset for the rest of the day and tell the rest of the herd, do you know what happened to me? A woe might only be regarded as a perceived or expected threat, but to humans it can hurt very much. Mental anguish can be far worse than the actual physical injury. In Revelation, when all these judgments come upon the inhabitants of the earth, people are going to be in a very high state of stress. In Revelation 9 verses 12 to 16, John hears a voice that says, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour the day, the month and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard their number. Now John hears this voice from the horns of the golden altar. This altar has been mentioned before, back in chapter 8. There we saw the altar of incense, where the prayers of the saints who were then on earth were offered before God. An angel then took the fire from the altar and threw it back on earth, and fire and judgment followed. The burning incense symbolizes the prayers of saints who are asking God to act, and returning that fire to earth is a symbol of answered prayer. So what now happens under the sixth trumpet is an answer to the prayers of the saints of that day. What were these believers praying? The answer is back at Revelation 6 verses 10. They prayed, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The second woe is God's specific answer to their prayer. 
The answer takes the form of the release of four powerful fallen angels who have been bound for centuries at the river Euphrates. These angels are most certainly fallen angels, because their sole purpose is to kill. They have been bound until they are released for this special purpose. These must be fallen angels, because the Greek word for bound, deo, is only used twice in the book of Revelation, and both times refers to Satan who is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. In Second Peter chapter 2 verses 4, other fallen angels are mentioned. He tells us that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So even this event is under the sovereign control of God, and it is a precisely timed event. They are released at the very hour, the day, the month and the year that God had long ago predetermined. So no human or demonic power could change that timing. This event takes place at the Euphrates River. This river was once the ancient boundary between the east and the west. The Euphrates flows out of the mountains of Armenia, down through the countries of Iraq and Iran, and out into the Persian Gulf. In the ancient world it formed the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. Many commentators have claimed that this army of 200 million is entirely composed of soldiers from the eastern nations, namely India, China, Japan, Indochina, and so on. It is true that the reference to the Euphrates River indicates that the barrier has been removed so that the eastern armies can come into the west, but I do not believe that 200 million of these soldiers come from the east. Demonizing the nations of the Far East is a common mistake of many zealous and religious individuals. Many commentators fail to note that there are four angels released who control this event. Firstly, four is used in scripture symbolically to denote the number of worldwide human government. It is also a symbol of the four compass directions of earth, north, south, east and west. These soldiers come from all of these directions. It would be almost impossible for any one nation today, or even several of them, to field an army of 200 million. To field an army that size would be logistically impossible, even for China. So I do not think that they will come all from the east. They come from all directions, and they will gather into one place. In Revelation chapter 16, that place is named for us. There we find the Euphrates River appearing again, and this time it is linked with the plain of Megiddo in Israel, or as we know it, Armageddon. So this is the first glimpse we have in Revelation of the great armies of earth that will come from all directions, east, south, north and west, and gather in the plain of Megiddo, in the land of Israel, for the great battle of the last days. This gathering of armies is further described by symbols in Revelation 9, verses 17 to 19. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates in the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. It is essential to keep in mind that we are reading an ancient book that describes events that are still in the future for us. 
What we have here is modern warfare described in the military terms of John's day in the 1st century AD. The breastplates of various colors suggest armored chariots. Today, we would call them tanks, missile launchers, and other military vehicles that are camouflaged with various colors, or perhaps even identified by national colors, since this is a conglomeration of armies coming together. Lion's mouths that spout fire and smoke hint at cannons and mortars, perhaps even nuclear missiles, killing with fire, radiation, or poisonous gases. Tails like snakes that do injury perhaps describe modern helicopter gunships, which have a rotor at the tail. Perhaps this vision might even depict weapons that have not yet been invented. It is difficult to say precisely what all this exactly means, but it is obvious that this depicts a huge military campaign, which results in widespread slaughter of one-third of all human beings. Remember that we are being gradually shown what is about to happen, and we will see other perspectives of these same events as we progress through Revelation. In Revelation 9 verses 20 to 21, we see the final scene under the sixth trumpet, which is the reaction of mankind to these awful and disastrous events. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Note that the worshipping of demons is mentioned. This depicts the lack of repentance from people who have believed and bought into the satanic lie. This is what Paul calls a strong delusion in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. People believe this lie, and therefore they are unable to repent. This is because they have begun unknowingly to worship demons. The worship of demons has always been focused mainly on the worship of idols and symbols. These idols can be in the form of medals, objects of rituals like crystals or pseudo-Christian crosses which people wear around their necks. Here in Revelation, John describes idols that cannot see or hear or walk. These objects do nothing for people no matter what they think about them. This submission to superstitions and strange teachings is typical of the last days. These people do not change their lifestyles, even under these terrible judgments. Furthermore, the remainder of mankind continue their murders, which probably includes abortion, genocide, and euthanasia. They also continue their sorceries. The Greek word used here is very interesting. It is pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy and pharmaceuticals. It really means drugs. Even today we see the awful practice of drug trafficking and usage which seems to be utter madness. Sensible people might ask, why do these people use drugs that destroy their lives? It is because drugs are a form of sorcery. Only here, during the events of the three woes, do they take on a more terrible form. Their sexual immoralities also continue. There is also thieving and stealing, like embezzlements and attempts to steal money. This will be nothing new, only much, much worse than it is today. I often rant about the terrible scourge of soap operas, but these entertainments only mirror and reflect the existing depravity of our own society. 
All these events from Revelation 9 verses 20 to 21 fill the news today. They are all glimpses that God has given us in preparation for the days that are coming. Yet we have not reached those days. But these current events are warning us of the nature of things yet to come. Even after the awful bloodbath of a nuclear war, where one out of three die, still there will be no change of heart. You might be thinking now, in the face of this obstinate refusal to change, why is there judgment? What is judgment for if it does not produce any change of heart? The book of Revelation has already told us that millions will repent. Remember the great multitude which no man could number in Revelation 7 verses 9? They repented in the midst of judgments. They believed and received the grace of God. But here is a great number that judgment has not affected in that way. Judgment does not make these people listen because their hearts are hardened. They are unable to believe. They are no longer able to hear because they have refused the grace of God. This is what produces this kind of hardness of heart. God never intended to convert the world through judgment. What judgment does is makes us listen to grace. It makes us take seriously what God is offering as a way of escape. In these terrible judgments we see the power, the majesty, the might and the inescapability of God and we have to ask ourselves, what can I do to be saved? That is the effect of judgment. God then provides to those who feel their peril a message of grace. It is not when judgment threatens that we turn to God. It is when we see God's suffering love that gives itself for us, that carries the hurt and the agony and the pain. It is that that breaks our proud hearts and that opens the door to salvation. But if we reject that grace when it is clearly offered and turn our backs on it, it is that that hardens our heart and makes repentance impossible. In the last podcast, episode 36, I quoted Hebrews 2 verses 3 and asked, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I ask that same question again now. Now we move on to Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. In both chapters 8 and 9, we saw the disasters that will come upon the earth. They are frightening and sobering, even for believers, so perhaps we feel the need for some encouragement at this point. God anticipates this and has given us, in chapters 10 and most of chapter 11, another break. That comes in between the judgments of the sixth and seventh trumpets. We have already noted that in these series of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of the wrath of God, that there is always a break between the sixth and the seventh judgment. Chapters 10 describes three mysteries. There is the mystery of the mighty angel that appears at the beginning of the chapter. There is the mystery of God which the angel proclaims. And finally, there is the mystery of the little scroll that is held in the angel's hand. We will only have time to deal with the first mystery in this episode, the identity of the mighty angel. 
If you carefully read about the angel of Revelation 10 verses 1 to 4, we get certain clues as to who he is. This great angel comes robed in a cloud. A cloud reminds us again of the nation Israel. When Israel was marching through the desert, they were always led by a cloud by day and followed by a pillar of fire by night. It was the same cloud at night that was lit from within by fire, so it appeared as a glowing pillar of fire. Later on in Exodus, when the tabernacle was completed, and later still when the temple was built, this same cloud came down and filled the Holy of Holies. It was called the Shekinah, the cloud of glory, and was an indication of the presence of God. Right from the start we have a clue that identifies this angel as Jesus himself, Jesus, God the Son, appearing as the angel of Jehovah. This angel has a rainbow above his head. We last saw a rainbow around the throne of God in chapter 4 of Revelation. The angel's face, we are told, was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. That will take us back to chapter 1, when John saw the vision of Jesus standing in the middle of the lampstands of the seven churches. Then, John describes his face as shining like the sun, and his feet or legs were like burnished glowing bronze. As John watches, he sees the angel plant one foot upon the land and the other upon the sea, so that he stood astride the earth like a giant colossus. This symbolizes his ownership of the entire earth. This is the rightful owner of the earth, claiming it for himself. There is another more subtle clue here. Remember the symbols of the sea and the land? Jesus is the medium through which salvation, which was through the Jews, symbolized by the land. It comes to all people, including the Gentile nations, symbolized through the sea. The last clue is that this angel roared like a lion. This takes us back to the scene in chapter 4, where we saw the slain lamb, who is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. His roar is one of triumph over the earth. Again, we have clues that Israel is coming into focus again as God's people. They will be used in a special way throughout this period of judgment of the last days that will continue on to the millennial kingdom under the return of Jesus. This scene must have been a great encouragement to John and to all believers. It helps us see that all these cosmic events affecting earth are still under the firm control of the angel of God. He is working out everything that happens on his own timetable. This is the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh, the great angel who accompanied Israel through the wilderness wanderings. This angel always appears when Israel becomes the focus of God's program. As an answer to the roar of this angel, there are seven great peals of thunder. John hears what these thunders say and is about to write it down, he tells us, when there comes another voice that says, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. This is the only part of Revelation that still remains sealed. The rest of the book has been unsealed for our benefit, but not the words contained in the seven thunders. These have not been revealed yet. Only John knows what the seven thunders uttered. Thunder has always been a symbol of the judgment of God, so this must be something to do with judgment. We do not know why it was sealed. John does not tell us. Perhaps he did not know himself. He simply obeyed what he was told to do. If you want a possible clue as to what these seven thunders declared, you might look at Psalm 29. In that psalm, seven times the voice of the Lord thunders over the earth in judgment. You might gain some clue as to what these seven thunders in Revelation said. But for now, it is sealed to us. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that there was a time when he too was caught up into heaven and heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. There are truths from God that he does not want us to know just yet. It is not that he will never tell us, but he will not tell us now. Deuteronomy 29 verses 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That is why we are to carefully study the things already revealed to us in the Word of God. This is David Wiles, your fellow traveler in Christ, and this has been the Journey Through the Scriptures podcast, episode 37.